Anybody here ever do anything you regret? Dated the wrong person? Yelled at the wrong kid? Cheered for the Cardinals rather than the Cubs? <laughs> Hector Cameron, wherever you are, that's for you. Ate a dessert you had no business eating, threw some reds in with the whites, got lost when you assured your wife you knew how to get to the final destination. I think it was about 12 years ago uh, in the winter, my friend Pam and I walked together three mornings a week. We met at 5.45 in the morning and we walked five miles religiously. Rain, sleet, snow, didn't matter. And we took our two hunting dogs with us. Pam had a hunting dog named Jake, and we had not really a good hunting dog. She was supposed to be, but she was a failure. Her name was Chessie. This was the dog that we had before Stella. And I walked with Chessie to Pam's house and then met her and her dog, and off we would go on our walk. And as is common, dogs would need to have their morning constitutional. Uh, during the walk, and very often they would do this early on in the walk, and we did not want to carry, uh, uh, say, a Target bag or a high v bag full of dog poop with us for five miles. So if the dogs did their work close enough to my friend Pam's house, we would often throw our bags of poop toward Pam's house and then pick them up later. So... One morning, Chessie did her work, and I took the high V bag or target bag, and I reached down there, and I picked up that dog poop. And Pam's house was pretty far away, so I was going to have to really launch that sucker. And so I turned back toward her house, and I ripped it. And my release point was just a little too high. And so instead of having a forward trajectory, this bag of dog poop had a severe upward trajectory. And I watched it go. And it landed with its two little rabbit's ears, because I tied it in a knot, it landed right in Dr. Stephen Davis's, a local surgeon with the most beautiful home in our neighborhood, right in a big tree in Dr. Stephen Davis's yard. And it just hung up there. Just a bare tree, a big bag of dog poop, Dr. Davis's fountains in his circular driveway and his perfectly coiffed hosta. I fell down in the dark street. I was laughing so hard. That poop hung up in that tree all day. Till my friend Pam called me later in the evening and she just said to me, the eagle has landed. <laughs> she went and picked it up and that was the end of that story. You know, this is a pretty funny story. But there are lots of other things that I have done, bad choices that I've made, mistakes that I'm not going to share while I'm standing up front at church. Bigger, darker choices I would give anything to take back, choices 
that have left a dark scar of regret on my soul. And I bet some of you have those choices too. And the question that I want to explore with you this morning is what kind of wisdom can we find in the Bible about regret? About the aftermath of wrong choices? I mean, where do we go with our guilt? What do we do with kind of that lasting sense of shame and inadequacy? And I believe whether we are people who are trying to follow Jesus or not, I mean, who doesn't want some wisdom on this topic? So this teaching is for anyone who has ever made a wrong choice. It's for any of us who've ever failed at what really mattered. It's for those of us who have messed up in ways that sometimes feel unforgivable. For those of us who felt like maybe we've made such a bad choice or such a series of bad choices that we are disqualified from the game somehow, that we've thrown just a few too many bags up in our neighbor's tree. And if there were a person from the biographies of Jesus who could be a poster child for wrong choices, it would be a man named Peter. Peter was one of the original followers of Jesus And Peter was an impetuous man. He tried to walk on water after Jesus called him out of a boat, and he got freaked out, basically, and just went under. He upset Jesus so much at one point that Jesus point-blank called him the devil. At a moment of great power and mystery, when the ancient biblical heroes Moses and Elijah appeared next to Jesus, I don't know how it happened, Peter just blurts out, let's build a tent and live here forever, guys. He fell asleep, Peter did, at Jesus' most desperate hour. And when Jesus got arrested, Peter took out his sword and cut off a guy's ear. But then we come to the big one. Toward the end of his life, Jesus gathered his closest friends around him, and he starts to try to explain to them what is about to happen. And these guys tried, but they really didn't get it. But I think they could tell that it didn't sound good. And and Jesus was trying to get them to understand how bad it was going to be when he got arrested and was taken away by the Roman guards to be crucified. And he just flat out says to them, you all are going to desert me. And Peter, without full understanding, just barks out with great bravado, I won't desert you, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, "Uh, yes, you will. And Peter says, no, I won't. Even if the others do, even if all these other friends of yours do, Jesus, I won't desert you. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter. Cut scene, flash forward. Jesus has been arrested. We pick the story up in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. This is what it says. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. So Jesus had been arrested. Simon Peter and another disciple were following him. And because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. 
The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, I think it was John, kind of bragging on himself, came back, spoke to the servant girl who was kind of on duty, and and brought Peter in. But the servant girl first asked Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? He replied, I am not. Move forward a little bit in this passage, and it says, meanwhile... Simon Peter was still standing by this fire, warming himself, and so they asked him, you weren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, I love this part, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him? In the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Three times, Peter openly denied even knowing the one person who needed him at that moment more than he had ever needed anyone. Three times. Can you imagine that. See, most of us, if we've lived long enough, know, at least in part, the feeling of doing something that seems irredeemable. It seems unforgivable. One of the greatest human fears is being found out for who we really are. And Peter got found out. And then the one he betrayed died the death of a common criminal on a cross. And all that lies ahead for Peter is a life filled with regret and blame and self-loathing. He cannot go back and repair his mistake. Or so he thinks. Because this is before Peter had a run-in with the risen Jesus the Lord of the second chance. This is before Peter experiences firsthand the great mystery that lies at the very center of the Christian faith. Peter experienced the resurrection of Jesus. And so at the very end of John's gospel, where John is finishing up his biography of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Peter gets to see and talk to the risen Jesus whom he had betrayed face to face. I mean, there's nothing worse than failing someone you love, but then having to look them in the eye. This is what John writes. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Now, Jesus is not messing around because he just used Peter's full name. You know, when your mom uses your full name, I'm sure Peter thought he was in trouble. Jesus, or Simon, son of John, and then Jesus asks him the weirdest question. Do you love me more than these? Why didn't he say, why did you betray me? He just said, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I love this little detail. And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, oh, poor, sweet, little pointed head, Peter. Seriously? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I don't know why Jesus asks Peter that specific question, do you love me? No one does. Although people write books trying to pretend they know exactly why Jesus asked Peter that question. We don't know why, but I wonder... I wonder if Jesus is looking at Peter with all his regret and his shame for what he has done, and Jesus wants to remind Peter that sometime during his ministry, when Peter was his follower, Jesus said, he or she who is forgiven much loves much. If you've been forgiven much, Peter, you're going to love much. It's like he is saying to him, Peter, do you remember when I said that? Those who are forgiven much love much. Don't you get it? This is the core of my gospel, Peter. I just conquered death. Don't you think I'm big enough to conquer your failure? I already forgive you. See, they didn't even have that discussion. I already forgive you. So do you love me? Then go do my work. Feed my sheep, Peter. Take care of my people. Because you have forgiven much, I know you will love much. Most people... And I believe Peter, even though he was a follower of Jesus, was just like most people. Most of us, if we're honest, when we get quiet, which isn't very often, we feel inadequate. We know we disappoint people. We disappoint ourselves. We disappoint other people. And I think we deeply feel like we disappoint God. And our lives become, in some way, sometimes it's very subversive and underground, sometimes it's more overt, our lives become in some way an attempt to be good enough to get God to not be disappointed in us. And we strive in our own power to relieve our own guilt and our own shame and our own inadequacy. Why shouldn't we spend our lives trying to be good? Right? Isn't that the heart of Christianity? Just a bunch of people working really hard to be good? This story of Peter should remind us that there is no such thing as a good Christian. 
If you use that phrase with me, I will give you a snake bite. I will pinch you on the underside of your tricep. There is only a good God and a bunch of people throwing dog poop in our neighbor's trees right and left. As Thomas Merton said, a saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. See, Peter had to learn this at the deepest, deepest level when he was most broken. And so do I. And so do you. I mean, maybe you've hurt someone you love. Maybe you did it a long time ago. Maybe you did it this morning. And you're just eaten up by guilt. Or maybe you lied about something to do with your finances, or something to do with your business, or something to do with, with your schoolwork, and you're worried, you live worried that you're gonna get found out, or perhaps you're involved in some kind of habitual thing that's destroying you and you wish you could stop it, but you can't, so you try to manage it and hide it, and you find yourself fibbing and living in denial, and it's just exhausting. Or maybe you feel like, or you know, you failed at marriage or parenting or friendship or your work, and this sense of failure just clings to you. You can't get rid of it. Or maybe you just feel bad about yourself all the time. Well, here's what I want you to know. There's nothing that you or I have ever done that is more powerful than God's forgiveness of us through Jesus. Nothing. And if you think there is something, I have two words for you. The cross. John Ortberg said this. He said, the cross is the place where human beings can be freed from every sin and every wrong decision. The cross is the place where they all can become irrelevant to our final score, where we can be given clean slates as if starting all over again. And anybody who wants to, Jesus claimed, anybody who wants to, no matter what you've done, can become Jesus' follower and learn how to live his kind of life and be utterly forgiven and liberated from the life of regret and pain that is so familiar to fallen human beings. Do you believe that? Utterly forgiven, clean slate. See, many of us say we do. Oh, I believe in that. But when it comes down to it, we actually don't. We say we do, but we actually don't believe it. We still operate out of the mindset that says... I am worthy of God's love and acceptance when I am a good person. God loves me when I am good. And God is angry and disappointed with me when I mess up. And he turns his head away from me and he shakes his head. We live as if that is true. But that is not the gospel of Jesus. 
The reason why the message of Jesus was called good news and still is called good news is because it negates the works-based idea that I can just work my way into God's good graces. The gospel wipes that idea out. Trying to become good is not the Christian gospel. Living in the freely received forgiveness of Jesus is. So here's my second point, last point. I only have two points. The choice to extend forgiveness is God's. But the choice to live in the power of that forgiveness is up to us. Even after denying Jesus in his moment of greatest need, Jesus forgave Peter, invited him back in the game, and gave him a pivotal role to play. Peter, you know, was a rock of the church. But Peter could have so easily rejected the second chance or the billionth chance that Jesus was so clearly offering him. You and I do this all the time. We mess up. We sin, we throw some dog poop up in the tree of life, and then we give in to this belief that we've messed up so badly that our sin now defines us, that we are somehow beyond grace, and we refuse Jesus' offer of forgiveness. We just flat out say, you know what, thanks Jesus for what you did for me and all humanity on the cross, but I don't accept it, not really. I'm just going to let guilt and shame eat at me for the rest of my life, okay? Um, But I'll come to church, and I'll really try to be good. How's that? Deep inside Jesus, what I'm really interested in is a life of self-crucifixion. Way, way too many of us live in the highly unbiblical idea that what God really wants are good Christians. And if we try hard enough, we can become one of these. Listen to what my favorite alcoholic, Brennan Manning, says about that nonsense. He says, our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling for brownie points, our thrashing about trying to fix ourselves while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in guilt are nauseating to God and are a flat denial of the gospel of grace. My friends, here is one of the most absolutely brilliant things about God. If we allow it, that first phrase is key, if we allow it, God is able to take the one thing that has the most power to separate us from him our sin, our shame, and our guilt. God is able to take that one thing, if we allow it, and to transform it into a daily, constant reminder to meet him at the foot of the cross. The choice to take our screw-ups, large and small, to the foot of the cross, where we can be washed clean by Jesus' love, is always there, and that choice is always always ours. Jesus Jesus won't drag you to the cross. He just won't. And some of us are so 
burdened. We're so weighed down with shame and guilt that we spend way too much of our life, our one very precious life, doing two things. One, we try to hide how bad we really are. Do you ever wonder who invented getting dressed up for church? And two, we try to do a bunch of good things to become good enough for God. We give all of our energy away to these two things rather than actually believing in the good, good gospel and letting Jesus' good, good work be enough. It's enough for you. The church is not the place for good people to come and crow about how good we are. It is the place for people who are in desperate need of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. It is the place for people who need redemption, who need grace. It is the place for people like Peter, and it is the place for people like you, and it is the place for people like me. So let's stop pretending it is anything else. feel like I should close with a quote from the great reformer Martin Luther. He would like being in a greatest hit series in 2018. This is what Luther said. May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is good. Amen, Martin Luther. I want to be in a church of the faint-hearted, the failed, the feeble and the ailing who believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I believe Peter, the rock of the church, would pray the same thing. And oh, my friends, that is my prayer too. Even I, a dog poop in the tree throwing sinner, thank God for the forgiveness of sins. God, I think it is the part of your gospel that is the hardest for us to actually live as if we believe. That we can be freely forgiven. Not to go out and keep sinning, but to be freely forgiven so that we can love. Love you, love ourselves, love our neighbors, love our enemies because we understand that it's all grace and it's all gift and there's nothing we can ever do to earn it and when we try to earn it it is nauseating to you god would you help each one here in a new way this morning live in the freedom and the power of the forgiveness of jesus